Take a look at it with me, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 19. It says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus answered, and he said to him, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? <coughs> Excuse me. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such a case, if the, or such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, how sad is that? Ladies, what's for sure is if a guy says something like that, don't marry the guy. Well, then Jesus says, just to add fuel to the fire, he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there were eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Oh, boy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to seek your word here, to seek your presence in a manner, Lord, where we could be transformed, changed, completely transformed into your image. And we recognize, Lord, we meet you in various states of understanding, We reach you in various states, Lord, of our seeking progress with you. We recognize that there is only one gate like the East Gate, Lord, where we would enter in through the gift of Jesus Christ. The Lamb shed in perfect sacrifice His blood for our sins. Thank you, God, that you have offered us a gift, the gift of reconciliation with you through a price that you paid and not ours. We pray today that your sacrifice would become clear and evident also. We pray that every one of us, be it those who have had said yes to you, continuing to walk with you, would be encouraged and strengthened and built up and equipped for every good work as you ordained. So God, may your word burst open and come alive. May you redeem every second and may you captivate us in it. Lord, whether we understand or we don't in the beginning of this, may we walk out of here getting this and understanding why this is so important to you. So Lord, now, develop your text as we give ourselves to reading and exhortation and doctrine. Lord, please now, speak to our hearts. Let's to understand you. And Lord, by your presence, by the power of your Spirit, now make our hearts fertile soil and our ears open to what you would say to us. May we have so much fun. And here now we pray. May we worship you in the study of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I would say what I would always. Don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the final say. We first of all want to put us into context.
Jesus is facing the inevitability and the eminence of the cross whilst he's doing so. His disciples are jockeying for position. They both see the kingdom coming and the king reigning, but they see it through very different lenses and two very different ends. The disciples, they come for the purpose of who would be greatest. And Jesus calls a child who humbly comes without pretense when called and says, this is your example. Jesus, on the other hand, is coming to save that which is lost, like a shepherd chasing after the one wandering sheep. And it tells us, he tells us, it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. And in light of Jesus coming to save you, me, chasing after us, every one of us, individually, he starts to show us the practical behavior of those who do follow him to follow in his footsteps. We deal with the sinful brother. And he tells us to do so for the purpose of winning him back. And he shows us the process to take every means necessary to restore him if possible. He tells us the fundament of confession and forgiveness. And then gives us the parable of the unforgiving servant who, by the way, was forgiven so much. And though still had much owed to him, nothing in comparison would refuse to forgive even though he was forgiven infinitely more. We see the core of that foundation being restoring and reconciliation, forgiveness, genuine, repentant confession, and honest forgiveness. For which, then, he takes us to this chapter. And Matthew, by the way, not required to give us a linear account, but in a very traditional Hebrew mindset, gives us things by theme, and does so to keep this mindset of forgiveness. This mindset of Jesus coming to save and us living as Christians, acting and are, if you will, to be Christ-like. And he shows us that now by a confrontation. And notice, by the way, it tells us in verse 1 then, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, the last thing he'd spoken about was the unforgiving servant and the grave consequences of a person who was forgiven so much but refused to forgive in return. And in light of that, or in the shadow of that, with the words still echoing and reverberating in our hearts as we follow him, he departs from Galilee and takes that trip now 70 miles south. And it says he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, if you're not a sort of a person who studies maps, that that may mean little to you. And I get the idea Judea is fairly important here, obviously. This is, of course, the place for David, and it's the place where we would expect Jesus himself from that lineage of course, taking us then into the southern area, working our way up to Jerusalem. And yet, he tells us beyond the Jordan. Now, that's a strange thing. Uh, and, and, for, and forgive me, I, I don't want to overdevelop things, but I want us to get why Matthew would even put that in here. To go beyond the Jordan was the classical trip that the Jewish person would make because they didn't want to go directly south. If you will, we have the Sea of Galilee and the stream that follows, which is the Jordan and the Dead Sea on there. And if you were to watch it from your sake, that would make this east. They would travel from here and they would go to the east side to travel through Decapolis to avoid going straight south, which was Samaria, and then work their way back in just above the Dead Sea into Jerusalem. Now, that would be the normal trip, except I read here, according to Matthew 11, 10, 11, and 17, or Luke, I'm sorry, 10, 11, and 17, that he actually went through Samaria. So somewhere in all of that, he goes through Samaria, the place he would normally avoid, and then still crosses the Jordan. And, and why would that be so important for him to put this in here? Because then he tells us he goes into the land of Judea, and Judea is not east of the Jordan. Judea is west of the Jordan. To the east would be the two and a half tribes that had settled prior. That's half tribe of Manasseh. God. Now, for what it's worth here, it's fine. So, 
Reuben. And so the reason I say that is, is that Jesus takes us that route, but that route is a really, that, well, it's a route rife with history because that particular route, while at least crossing the Jordan to come back into the land of Judea, would be the, the route that the Israelites would have taken actually 1,400 plus years before when entering into the promised land. And I'll consider the fact that we would be staring at the Jordan, knowing that we were going to cross over. And if there was anything as we're preparing for the Passover, we're reviewing the story in our head from Exodus. And I can see this idea here as we're kind of going through it and we're, we're fumbling through the sort of Psalms of ascent. And we're kind of, as Jesus is leading us through it, we see this place where we recognize that it was over 400 years ago that the nation Israel looked into this area. Actually, at this point, you know, and, we're, and then uh, 1400 years before Jesus, and they're looking into this area and they realize according to Numbers 13 and 14, they would not go in because of a lack of faith. And yet then the nation would die and another generation would look, stare through the Jordan and cross over, become comfortable and turn their back on God for the blessings they'd received. That was about 1400 BC. Now, the reason I say that is this, that what Matthew was preparing us for is we're going to see really, in essence, two encounters, two different groups of people that are approaching Jesus. And then we're going to see the two camps that Jesus plays out in this why they're actually asking the question in the first place. But I get the idea why Matthew was starting us here, because he's showing us that there was this side where there was a lack of faith refusing to enter in, and then there were those that actually did enter in, but they really just turned their back on God for the comfort they had. Very Two very stark warnings for us. And then he takes us to this text and tells us, in verses 2 and 3, that there were two groups of people that actually approached him. It says that the multitudes followed him, and what they came for was simply healing. He healed them there. On the other side of it, the Pharisees came to him, and they came testing him. Now, that's an interesting place to start here. What that tells me is, at least here, that the multitude came for this very temporary fix. And it can be a very easy thing. You can come to church because you're afraid you got your girlfriend pregnant. You're afraid that you're going to get arrested. You're afraid that you have a disease. There's all kinds of reasons to bring you out of the foxhole and into the church. But the problem is, is the moment that whatever it is that drove you to the church seems to subside, you'll be gone as quick as you came. And there's a problem. If what you're really looking for is a very temporary fix, the worst thing God could do is fix you. Because if what you really get out of that was God to fix that one simple problem, he'd never see you again. I mean, people are coming, if you will, for a fix-up, but they're not coming for an overhaul. I didn't come to ask Jesus to clean up my life. I asked him to actually give me a brand new one. Praise God for that. So there were those who on one side were really looking for the, if you will, the simple fix. On the other side, there were the Pharisees, and they came with a very different attitude altogether. They came to actually publicly defeat Jesus. Now, the irony is they were representatives of God, and yet, in their representation of God, they were fighting God. They were drawing battle lines with God on the other side. Now, how do you represent God and fight him at the same time? So as we look at this now, we kind of get the idea. I remind you, Jesus has come to save And as Jesus has come to save, these are obstacles, if you will, to Jesus actually bringing them to a place of eternal salvation. Because they don't want the cross. The cross has no importance for a person who's ill, unless they think somehow by his stripes we're healed is enough for them to never catch the flu. On the other side of it, there are those, to be honest, who they just really want to try to show how insane it is to follow Jesus. The strange part is, one day we're all going to agree. So we have to start with this. Why this particular challenge? Why marriage? So we have to start to to develop this by actually showing what they were thinking at the time. 
So let me start with this. I'm going to use a couple examples here. So follow me, if you will, for a moment, and a little quick history. Once upon a time, there was a guy, and his name, he was actually born in Babylon, which is Iran, Iraq today, and his name was Hillel, means praise. And he made his way to Israel, and when he made his way to Israel, he went and studied Judaism. Now, he was a Jew by, by heritage. And he was there ultimately, uh, the rumor has it, by the way, he lived 120 years. In the last 40 of those years, he became president of the Jewish religious ruling party called the Sanhedrin, the 70. Now, he was known for his liberality. Now, for the most part, much of what he had said was very kind. Was very, I mean, he was very much, in a lot of cases, very open to the concern over people. And he was a national favorite for it. He was a person who was quick to loose. In other words, you would take the law, you know, if you will, the 613 different commandments, the mitzvot, and he would take those things and he would add freedoms to those. And when you start talking about what it means to keep the Sabbath, for instance, you say, well, this is something you can still do and, and you're permitted to do and still keep the Sabbath. That was the idea. Now, as he was the president of the Sanhedrin, well, there was another man who was actually a local. He was born in Israel. It was a sabras, if you will. And he was a particular individual, and his name was, I just had to grab you for that, Isaac. His name was Shemai. Now, Shemai, by the way, was the opposite. Shemai was the individual who was the hardcore. Where, by the way, if you will, Hillel was known for being patient. Shemai was known for being passionate. And he was one, though, who actually would say, because he was very much true to true Judaism in the, in the sense of, you know, it's kind of like, if you will, the nationalist party. He was kind of, he was very hardcore to the point where he would actually exclaim that Gentiles were created to fuel hell. I mean, that's kind of where a bit of his mindset was. But he was also hardcore when it comes to keeping the law. So on one side, you had a guy that was relatively passive and for the most part very much loved for it. And then there was another guy that was really hardcore to the law. Does that make sense so far? Now, this guy ultimately dies in 10 AD, which means when Jesus shows up on the scene, and you can debate on that, basically when Jesus shows up for his bar mitzvah, we know it from Luke chapters 1 and 2, ultimately this guy was just about to pass off the scene. Hello. And he was replaced then by his vice president, who was Shammai, which means that it's a lot like our politics or politics in America, where you have one person who maybe seem really liberal, and then it swings way over to a guy that's hardcore the other side of it. Does that sort of make sense? Now, Shammai, by the way, then, will rule the, the, um, the Sanhedrin from basically 10 A.D. to 30 A.D. So things really swing from, hey, let's all be cool and let's love each other, to, all right, here's the law. And he was the one who would teach things. Like, for instance, this individual, Hillel, would say, he was known for saying things like, for all the things that would, one would do that is bad towards another, this is the loose paraphrase for the Hebrew of it, he says, don't do that to your brothers. Because for this is the entirety of the Torah. Everything else is details. Now, Jesus, of course, would flip the negative to the positive and say, whatever you want men to do to you, you should do unto them, for this is the whole of the law and the prophets. So Jesus takes that very concept and flips it to a higher degree. But that was his saying. Now, with that in mind, so we go from 10 AD to 30 AD, which means when he passes off the scene, Jesus is stepping onto the public uh, scene as his public ministry. Does that make sense? And Shammai is replaced by this guy's grandson that we know of as Gamaliel. Perhaps you're familiar with him. Acts chapter 5, he was the president of the Sanhedrin when he steps up there. We also know him from Acts 22 as the personal tutor to who we know as Paul the Apostle. So that kind of gives us a little bit of that. Now, now let me say why that is so important. Because if we're going to play this out, we need to recognize that these two individuals then had their own disciples. 
And as they had their own disciples, they were very, very different in their mindsets, as you might imagine. These guys were, in the essence, much more liberal, much more people-focused, if you will. And these people were much more hardcore and much more law-focused. So when it came to one of the areas specifically that would, they would, the camps would be extremely wide would be the area of marriage. Now, when it came to the area of marriage, the schools of Hillel and the schools of Shammai were extremely different, and they were so polarized that the people would argue over it like the Pharisees and Sadducees would over the, over the resurrection. And they were so divided that at a point like this, to ask Jesus this question, it sounds like he has to choose one camp or the other, which means he's going to lose a part of the people who seem to be interested in him. Now, what Halal said, to be honest, and they were both a bit extreme, what Halal said in the simplest sense was, is that, look it. In, in matter of fact, one of the uh, phrases he's known for saying is that every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. Now, that sounds beautiful, but do you get the foreboding tense of that? You were actually permitted under the school of Halal to divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, including, but not limited to, if she oversalted or overcooked your food. And... If you found someone that met your eye to a greater degree, in other words, you found somebody cuter, that was it. You could trade her in for a new model. Now, needless to say, for the ladies, that would not be so good. For the guys that wanted a little bit of freedom, that was a pretty radical thing. And according to at least one historian, the average Pharisee that was in the school of Hillel had been married and divorced and remarried 13 times. There you go. So that was the school of Hillel. In the, in the simplest sense of it, you can divorce your wife for anything. All he had to do was take her to the, to the, to fulfill Deuteronomy 24, he would have to take her to the city court or to the gates of the city, because that's where the business transpired, the political business, and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. They'd write that out, and it was official. She was divorced. There's the deal. Now, Shemai, on the other hand, he was hardcore. And he said, you cannot divorce a woman except for marital unfaithfulness, for the uncleanness of adultery. Now, does that make sense so far? Now, we aren't raised in that kind of mindset here. But imagine, if you will, when they're asking Jesus, the average Jew, you would say, you know, we might say that like, you know, as an American, do you know how many people ask me, so what do you think of Trump? What do I think of Trump? Like, like I know the guy personally, like he's ever invited me over to dinner. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like amazing. It's like, where do you stand with who and where do you stand with Clinton? Personally, I, I, just, I think they're both performing monkeys and the whole thing's crazy. But but in it, it's like it's almost like you have to choose one side or the other. And you can do that in church, too. There's like, well, where do you stand on election versus free will? Are you like, a, I'm an elected person or are you a free willy? You know, where do you stand? And it's like amazing how they have to draw these lines. It's like, hi, nice to meet you. What category do I put you in? Well, that's what they're doing here. But imagine you took a public figure that claimed to be representative of Christianity, and then they were like, where do you stand on this issue, knowing that the church is polarized on it? You're going to lose some people. Does that kind of make sense? So they stand before Jesus, and they say, hey, so where do you stand on this? Can a guy divorce a woman for anything he wants to? Now, if Jesus were to say yes, that would put him in the school of which guy? Just point. Hello. Right. If you were to say, no, 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 you can't divorce him for anything except for adultery, well, whose camp is he standing in? He's standing in Shemai's camp. Does that make sense? So he knows that. But this is the beauty in it, is that with that, Jesus recognizes they're trying to nail him on this situation. So because of that, Jesus now has to respond. Now, what he would do traditionally, if you were to ask who you stood for, traditionally you would either quote Hillel or Shammai. Does that make sense? 
Because what you're saying in a simple sense is, are you from the camp of Hillel or are you from the camp of Shammai? And you just say, well, you know, Hillel says, or well, you know, Shammai says. But instead, Jesus does what we should do, and it's a great example here. He quotes scripture. Now, when somebody says, well, where do you stand? You know, where are you, where are you with Spurgeon? Or where are you at? I mean, there's some people that if you don't know who that is, that's just fine. If Spurgeon walks up to you and kicks you in the shins in heaven, you'll have to forgive him anyways, and the whole thing will be over. And you'll be like, well, all right, I didn't hurt you. But have you heard of Jesus? Because you can quote a whole lot of other people and never know Jesus, and that would be really criminal. That would be fatal. So please hear me in this. So with this, Jesus has to respond. Now, with that, notice what he says. Verse 4. And he answered and he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, please hear me in this. There are different kinds of standards that are out there. That for one reason or another, people tend to try to disqualify certain things by these particular Categories, if you will, three specifically. There is that of geographic, there is that of cultural, and there is that of chronological. A classic sense of this, by the way, and we could even go in as we were talking a little bit beforehand about some of these things. Geographic. Certain places where a standard is applicable that may not be applicable in another geography, in other words, in a different location. For instance, you're probably aware it is illegal to eat mute swan here in this country unless you're the Queen of Great Britain. You're probably aware of that, right? Probably aware that is, here's something, by the way, that is very geographical. You can't watch television here unless you have what? A license. That doesn't happen in America, by the way. So imagine you're like sort of watching TV and someone pulls you over and says, excuse me, let me see your license. I mean, there's a difference here. It's a geographical thing. It is an offense to be intoxicated and in charge of a cow in Scotland. Were you aware of that, by the way? Aye. It is illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament. Did you know that? Just thought, in Scotland, by the way, if somebody knocks on the door and requires a toilet, you have to let them enter. But in the entire UK, perhaps you're familiar with this, pregnant women are allowed to relieve themselves anywhere they need to, which includes, but not limited to, a policeman's helmet. Now, I guarantee you, where I come from in Chicago originally, don't try that one. That's, that's where they shoot and then say, stop or I'll shoot. In York. You can kill a Scotsman in the, within the ancient city walls, but only if he's carrying a bow and an arrow. You know that. Now, don't try that, by the way. Please. Don't say, well, my pastor said. In Ohio, it's illegal to get a fish drunk. In Alabama, it is illegal to drive blindfolded. Shouldn't that just be illegal everywhere? I don't know. It's kind of a bit of common sense. Someone's like, I'm using the force. Yes, and now you're going to be dealing with the force. All right. Uh, in Florida, an unmarried woman cannot parachute on a Sunday. Oh, she lands and they look for a ring. I'm not sure. In Milan, apparently, it is law to smile at all times except at funerals or hospital visits. I don't know. I want to go to Milan and find that out. In France, it is illegal to name a pig Napoleon. I guess that's probably appropriate. 
And the Maldives, Bibles are forbidden as they are on the Temple Mount at the particular moment. And these are all locational. Can we agree on that? I mean, you know, there's certain things that happen because they're at a location. In a different location, that's not necessarily applicable. I mean, you know, when you're in America, you start eating a swan. I don't know if you're going to get arrested for it, but if you do it at a public pond, people are probably going to get angry. Now, culturally, there are also those that are cultural. And what I mean by that is there are certain cultures that have limitations. We're aware of that, for instance, in some places you take off your shoes when you enter a house. Other places you don't. Some places you can wear a hat. Other places would be considered wrong to wear a hat. Some places, some places, if you go to church, you better be wearing a tie. And there are other places, if you show up in a tie, they might cut it. There are also, by the way, for instance, uh, it is illegal, by the way, did you know this, in England, it is illegal to jump the queue at a tube ticket office. I didn't know that. But, you know, queues are a big deal here. We're aware of that. All beached whales and sturgeons must be offered to the reigning monarch. I don't know if you're aware of that. So, uh, It is illegal <laughs> for a cab in the city of London to carry a rabid dog or a corpse. Yeah, I feel good about that one. How about you? And it's, by the way, here's one that's, that's rather cultural as well. To place a stamp of the monarch upside down on any of your postage is an act of treason. Are you aware of that? You do that in America, and you flip the thing upside down. If it's there, I don't think anyone's going to really notice. But here, that's a pretty big deal. But we're all aware of certain things. Matter of fact, I think Hugo was telling us culturally in France, don't cut your salad. Are you aware of that? It comes from a sort of a tradition where the, the knives would ultimately rust that they used to use. But I guess the idea is don't, don't cut your salad. I, I, another thing, by the way, is don't expect, if you're going out to eat in France, don't expect your bill within four hours. I mean, it's another thing, you know. Uh, but, I mean, there are certain things we know culturally. And what happens is if you're outside of that culture, I mean, in some places to belch after a meal is a compliment. In some places, belching is a great insult. You better know which one you're standing in. You know, those kind of things. In some places, you better cut your hair. In other places, you don't. I mean, it's amazing. Certain places, people just, I don't know why this is such a weird thing for me. Some cultures, people just, they dig for gold. They pick their nose and they go at it on public things. And you just, it just really shocks me. Uh, in Russia, if you yawn, you better cover your mouth because it really makes people angry. I, I think, like, just to show them how clean my teeth are. Anyways, with all in mind, there's a cultural thing. And if you're out of the culture, you get the idea that it wouldn't seem to apply. But then there's the third, which is chronological. For instance, in this country, it is illegal to keep a pigsty in front of your house unless it's properly hidden. Do you know that, by the way? So some of you better, after church, immediately go and... Properly hide your pigsty. Uh, it is illegal. Oh, this is one of my favorites for this country. It is illegal to sing any profane or obscene song or ballad in the street. Wouldn't it be great to see that thing come back? We're probably aware that there was a certain time uh, back in the early 1900s when in America it was illegal to have alcohol, which, of course, then, of course, removed. Uh, it is a, in an offense. It is illegal for the keeper of a public place of public resort, in other words, a place that houses individuals, to permit drunkenness in the house. Did you know that? It is illegal, here's, chronologically, it is illegal for a person knowingly, with the plague, to flag down a taxi or try to ride on a bus. I feel good about that, but I don't know how applicable that is today. It is illegal to enter the House of Parliament in a suit of armor. Or, I guess, to die there. So, and the reason I say that is this, and please hear me, this isn't just sort of the tickle. It's like, there are certain things where we can say, okay, culturally that doesn't apply here because that's a different culture. Geographically, that may apply there, but it doesn't necessarily apply here. You better take your shoes off if you're in Hawaii and you're visiting a friend. And you do that at our house, just don't have stinky feet or keep your shoes on. We're okay with that. 
you know. Uh, it's a different culture. It's a different place or a different time. You know, there was a time when you could be arrested for chewing gum in public in a lot of the East, uh, the East Coast of America. I mean, today, just, uh, just don't smack it around me. Anyways, but there are those things. And this is why I say that, is that when Jesus needs to pull a standard here, there is another one we call gnomic. A gnomic standard means that it transcends time, place, and culture. If you're pulling from something that is not your particular time or place or culture, then clearly you can't disqualify it by those things. You know, how many times do people say, oh, well, that was a different time or that was a different place? Who really needs that in Scripture? And one of those areas, to be honest, where that's a huge one, let's be honest, is the area of marriage. But this is what Jesus says. From the beginning, it was not so. Well, he takes us to the Garden of Eden then, doesn't he? When God actually invented marriage, you're aware of the fact that this is a covenant God invented. And by the way, if you invent something, you have a right to make the rules for it. Isn't that fair? And because God invented it, he has a right to set the rules. Now, what I know about that is that's at a different time, that's at a different place, and in an entirely different culture. Which tells me that when Jesus is pulling this up, you can't disqualify it by the things that other people might want to disqualify. This is a gnomic standard. Which means it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter when, and it doesn't matter what culture, as far as Christians are concerned, as those who follow God, there is a standard God has set that transcends all of those things. And there's the key here. We're not looking for a way out. See, the Bible tells us that we as Christians, we're never supposed to bend to the culture, but rather to shape it. We're supposed to be on the offense, not on the defense. So what Jesus does then is he takes us to the beginning. And when he shows us back all the way, by the way, do you know how many chapters into Scripture we get from the beginning of the Bible before God introduces us to a man and a wife? It's in the first, by the way. You can't get very far, verses 26 and 27. When God says, let us make man in our own tzedem, the word for image. You're probably aware every Hebrew word comes from a verb. It literally means to cast a shadow. God, if you will, man is made in God's shadow. So Tzalem, and then he tells us, in his likeness, the word Zamut, something in content and in character and in being reminds us of God. That tells me something from the beginning. When God wanted to make man, he intended to make them in such a way that if you could study the uniqueness of man, you could learn something unique about God. And there's the beauty in it. It is a classic Hebrew mindset to go and say, go and learn what this means. Uh, by the way, you're aware of the fact that's what Halal says when he talks about all of the law and the prophets, or in this case, as he says, about the golden rule, but in a negative sense. Go and learn what this means. Jesus would say it, of course, twice then, when he tells us to go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, as he quotes Micah. And then he says, if you'd learn what this meant, go, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. So he takes us back to the Garden of Eden, and he shows us a man and a woman. He says, it was one man, it was one woman, and there was no debate. There was no debate over whether this should be two men. You know the joke. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And, you know, and it's like there was one man, there was one woman, and it was for life. And God was the one who put them together, not man. In the simplest sense, who are we as human beings to assume we have the right to divide something God put together? Let me say that again. Who do we think we are to try to divide what God put together? And he intended this for so much more than just so that a guy could be happy and a gal could be happy too. 
Interesting, in those verses, he also tells us that God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. You realize, you know what a blessed marriage looks like? Fruitful and authoritative. That's what he tells us there in verses 26 and 27. A real blessed marriage is fruitful and authoritative. Now, look, and I'm not here to diss your past. I don't know where you've come from. Most of you, I really don't have any clue, but I do know this. I am here to challenge your future. And what he says is, this is something I invented, God speaking. And I have a right to dictate how that goes. But I'll be honest. The church debating over who should get married and shouldn't, we've been doing that for 50 years plus because we've been backing down on these verses. And the moment you start to compromise, how far do you go? And it's like, well, what about a man and his and another guy? What about a man and his dog? What about a woman and her son? Those are, by the way, all in court right now. You're aware of that, right? A man and his dog, a woman and her son. They want to be married. Yes, in one case, he thinks it really is his best friend. But please hear me in this. The, the idea here is, is that if the church stood for all of Scripture, what they would say is, we are not going to ever promote divorce. We'd rather you be single for the rest of your life than you to think somehow you could jump in and jump out of this thing. You know why? Because you deserve better. You deserve to actually have somebody committed for the rest of their life. Because according to Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us that the whole thing represents Christ and the church. See, God intended to build the family in such a way that it was so healthy and vibrant and right that when you looked at it, it would be easy to relate to his desire for you and his relationships. And the two relationships he desired first were actually of men, as a father and as a husband. Husband first, by the way, that was the intent, and then a father. So what would happen is we would learn what it meant to see commitment. So let me ask you this. And by the way, I've already primed Ruthie because I said, hey, I'm going to ask this. Uh, how many of you here have parents that are happily married, or if they've passed away, they died happily married. Can I just see by a show of hands? Take a look around. That's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? So I'm, can I just say, as a husband and as a father, don't worry, we ought to look, no worries. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you've seen that has been the failure of men. Men that haven't shown commitment men that haven't shown honor. I'm so, and, and I, I, I'm not going to try to disqualify myself. I'm a man, and I am a husband and a father, and I seek to, but I've learned this. There are two kinds of people, those that complain about it and those that seek to make a change, and I want to make a change. And I want to challenge every man here to make that change so that at least if you don't have that example, you can at least find it somewhere else. How many of you here know of at least one happily married couple? Raise your hand. Okay, there's some of you here still not raising your hand. Isn't that something? Yeah, well, my prayer is happily married couple is a couple, by the way, that is committed. And I've learned this. If you have a back door, you'll learn to find your way to it. When you start giving yourself ways out, you start giving yourself exit strategies. Bad idea. But I've learned this. When you don't give yourself that, you learn to work it out or get the help you need. 
here in this text, they're asking this, but Jesus is dealing with much more, a, a much bigger issue than just whose camp are you in? Are you a little dem? Are you a part of the labor? You, you know, what, 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 which, where do you stand on all this? Jesus is like, well, well, let's deal with the real issue here. The real issue here, the real issue here is about what it really means to be a real man and to be truly committed and to be truly right on, proper. Because when God invented man, he invented man to be committed. By the way, as much as Adam would fall and do stupid things, one thing is clear, Adam still dies married. And by the way, do you ever find that Adam married anyone other than Eve? I find that interesting. How about, you know? I mean, we really don't start seeing those kind of remarriage things for quite a bit of time. Or for that matter, polygamy. Or for that matter, any of these other questionable things that we want to add to marriage. But what if it happened? I'm not telling you that the, we should expect the world to bend to any of this. But I'm asking you this. What if we as Christians decided we would submit ourselves to what God, I mean, if he designed it, then he knows how it works best. Now, I look around the room, and I assume most of you here are actually single. Now, they think they're going to put Jesus in checkmate. By the way, that's never going to happen. But in this, understand, as we dive through the rest, and it'll go rather quick, I can't miss the heart of this. You need to recognize your God is committed to you. And he is an absolute, undeniable, a hot pursuit of you. Because he's in love with you. And he is not anything that you've seen in a man like that. He is somebody who knows everything about you and is unreluctant. He is somebody that is undeterred just because he knows. And he knows everything about you you don't. And he's still head over heels. So much so that he'd rather die than live without you. And that he made clear. That is the truest commitment. You know what? So you know you hear how committed Jesus was. He not only died for you, but then he rose again. I mean, face it. Once you die, you're kind of off the hook. He died. He rose again, and he's still committed to you. Talk about a committed guy. And he did all that because you owed God your guilt. But God instead chose to put it upon Him, as Isaiah 53 makes clear. So hear me in this, and we'll dive through the rest of the text. Throughout all of Scripture, God demanded not the worshiper, but the sacrifice be perfect. When you showed up back at the tabernacle, even at the temple, you brought a sacrifice. They didn't analyze you. They didn't check you out and say, well, you look pretty perfect, I guess. They, they, God required that your sacrifice be perfect. Because after all, if you're going to give him something that's mangy and ready to die anyways, it's no sacrifice for you either. But I love the standard. You see, you can't pick yourself perfect. I mean, once you're wrong, you're wrong. But you can't pick your perfect sacrifice. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God through him. Hear me on this. Here's the point. You can pick your works, but are they really perfect? Your church attendance, your prayers, are they really perfect? Or you can pick Jesus, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, completely spotless and without blemish. You can actually pick the perfect sacrifice. Aren't you thankful that that was the way that God set it up? So stand before God with anything else, and it's not going to be perfect, and therefore it's not going to work. Back in our text, he tells us this. Back in verse 4, he says, haven't you read? And these were the Bible scholars, and he thinks, haven't you even read this? 
He made them from the beginning, male and female. And then he picks these two beautiful words as we see them in the Greek here, at least. In verse 5, he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Did you notice in verse 6 it says as well, Therefore what God has joined together, the word joined. Now, by the way, can I just say this, ladies, specifically to you? Boys make terrible husbands. Men make husbands. Don't marry a boy. Peter Pan is single for a reason. And says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Because when you're with mom and dad, you ain't a man, you a boy. And they may be charming. Peter Pan was charming. The green tights didn't do it for me, but he was charming. But he makes a terrible husband. I mean, there was always that love triangle anyways. Wendy and Tink, the whole thing was messed up. But when you get down to it, a man's got to grow up because he's got to take the responsibility to represent in the house. And if he's going to represent in the house, he can't do that as a boy. And a man's got to leave his father and mother. By the way, did you notice Jesus actually said God said that? You know, you read that in Genesis and you're like, well, who said that? You know, Moses or, uh, you know, as he's writing in his commentary or to Adam. It says here, didn't you know that God made them this way and then he's the one who said. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two are going to become one flesh. They will be joined. Verse 5, the word joined, by the way. And two quick words, by the way. The word here is the, is the word praskalo. Can you say praskalaho? Plus, kalaho is the word we have here. And the word plus means towards, kalos means to cling. When it says a man and a wife will be joined together, they're going to literally, they cling towards each other. This is the choice the man makes and the woman makes. We are choosing to cling together. That's the idea of that word. And by the way, I know this because we, we say this often, that when I said, by the way, it was 26 years ago I got married, same girl, still married, you know, and it said, when I said I do at the altar, I know what I said is I do commit to say I do for the rest of my life. I didn't wake up today and say I don't. I didn't even wake up this morning and say maybe. And I chose to cling to her for the rest of my life. But what's interesting is it's not the word used in verse 6 when it says, therefore, what God is joined together. Now, this particular word, by the way, is the word sunyagaha or sunyagumi. And the word simply means, sun means together. It means to, to yoke. It literally means to yoke together. We chose to cling. My wife and I choose to cling together. And God then puts the yoke upon both of us. And he says, now the two of you spend the rest of your life together in the field doing what I've called you. How beautiful is that? He says, if God's put that yoke upon the two of us to walk together, what in the world happens when you try to separate this through a man? So verse 7, then they think they're going to play him. Here's their checkmate move. They said, well, then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's, by the way, from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 5. Please understand, because what Moses is doing, by the way, is, is, and Jesus is going to say it, is there's never a commandment here. It's a permission. There's a difference. Because he said from the beginning it wasn't so. But please hear me. Men were just waking up and saying, I divorce you, not bringing it even to make it official. And then she would be sent out of the house. But at night, they'd start hearing Kenny G and they'd get a little lonely and they'd say, oh, I was just joking. I mean, ladies, could you imagine you're just being a plaything at that point? And what Moses said is, look, if you're going to do this, and ultimately it was the idea of sending her off. She married someone else. She got sent off. By the way, God never actually said that the victim couldn't get remarried, but he did say that the perpetrator couldn't. And here, what he says then is, listen, you know why Moses did this? And notice it says, Moses permitted this, verse 8, because of the hardness of your heart. Sclerocardia. Cardia, we get that. That means heart. Scleros, by the way. And in this case, the word skelo means to dry up. It means because your hearts are dried up. You know why you don't love? Because, man, your heart's dried up. 
When you're so dried up that your toast is dry and you're saying you're done. God says, man, that is not the way I intended this. You think you've got a way out? Do you even realize that your freedoms are hurting other people that you claimed to love? And he goes, man, I tell you this. And he, in this sense, if you will, sides with Shammai, if you will. Remember back at that. He says, man, if you actually divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, you marry another, God's like, I don't recognize that divorce. That's what he's saying. What does it mean to commit adultery? That means sex outside of marriage. He's saying, I don't recognize that. You can. People might applaud you for it, but I don't. Work it out. So with that in mind then, Jesus... Now his disciples hear this, and again, there's not a buffet of exit strategies. You learn how to, to work it out and get the help you need. His disciples say, well, if such a case is true... With a man and a wife, man, it'd be better not to marry. Now, isn't that sad? What they're saying is, man, if this really is going to be for life, well, then we really, maybe we just shouldn't do it. And please hear me in that. To be honest, I would rather recommend that. If you can't commit for the rest of your life, then don't play it. It's just that simple. Because, and by the way, let me just make clear, if you really want to know how God truly feels about it, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. At least as we have it in order. And in Malachi chapter 2, God talks about dealing treacherously. Do you know what that means? Treacherously, that's like treason. It means you've done with me, you, you deal me wrong. And you're not just dealing me wrong, you deal me wrong in a way that really hurts. Treachery. You say, you want to know how? Because you divorce the bride of your youth. And this is what he says in Malachi 2.16. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He doesn't say that it bothers him a little bit or it makes him uncomfortable. He says he hates it. He says it covers one's garment with violence. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and do not deal treacherously. Now look at I am so sorry for those of you who have been dragged through people who couldn't commit like that. And I know that you, what you've watched is people bail. And one way or another, they just got tired of it and wasn't worth the fight. And then if you're a part of that, you're a kid and you watch that, when you watch this people and you went, well, am I worth the fight? Because you know what happens? Then you have to fight over the time with the children. And in some cases, there wasn't even that at all, was there? Some of you, that probably was, they were just gone and they were gone. But please hear me. You are worth the fight. You are so worth the fight. It was so worth the fight that God dragged you into this church today so you could hear this, so you could be reminded one more time that he's never going to give up on you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till that day in Christ Jesus, who he knows what he's doing. And he is never giving up. You could say, but I've blown it. I've done so many stupid things. And I can just say, in a moment here, we're getting ready for communion. And we're going to come to the table together where this whole thing should basically meet I want you to recognize God loves you not because you're so dang lovable. He loves you because he's love. And that is never going to change. And the love that he's earmarked for you, nobody else can get it. It's bespoke to you. And you can fight that and you can say, God, I don't want this or whatever, but it's not going to change his heart for you on this. It's just going to change your status because in the end of it all, you just won't be receiving what he offers. 
So Jesus, in these last two verses, says this kind of wild thing. He's like, he talks about eunuchs. Now, we're probably aware a eunuch is when a man's particular body parts are removed. Hopefully I said that quick enough and careful enough. It was a common practice, by the way, that ultimately was outlawed by Domitian. Uh, But it was something we're familiar with all the way back in Acts. It ends there because we have the Ethiopian eunuch, the guy who, by the way, was, if you will, castrated to serve the queen. Uh, There was a couple of reasons for it. We We know, by the way, from the book of Daniel, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all, by the way, castrated as well. We're aware from the book of Esther, and that would make perfect sense that when Ahasuerus was looking for a trophy wife, the guy that oversaw all of the candidates was castrated for a good reason. Of course, you're checking out the girls. You don't want a guy that can mess that up. So what is Jesus saying? Because some people have taken this in really funky places. When a person was, when such a thing was so done to them back then, what was happening was they were showing their complete, at that point, their complete and absolute allegiance to their king and their kingdom. It was that simple. I mean, the bottom line is there are a lot of things that happen. And there's like hormone therapy in the sense that a lot of the testosterone leaves a guy's body because it's no longer generated. And it keeps the fight out of him. He no longer fights the king or his dominion. That's kind of the simplest of it. Matter of fact, in some places in the world, they do that to guys who are sexual uh, predators. They do that to some people who, by the way, are just very, very violent because they're doing so actually calms them and actually keeps them from being so violent. There are others, by the way, who inject testosterone, you're probably aware of it, to be be able to generate more of that in them. And here's the point of it. He goes, look, there are some people, they were born that way. There are other people, by the way, that just happened at the hands of a king. But Jesus is not in any way here endorsing castration, but he is endorsing this. Stop fighting the king and declare your allegiance to his kingdom. There's the simplest of it. And if you understand that, in context of where he just went, you get the idea that it's like, look at, why are you fighting God over something he wants to bless you with? Like marriage. Do you really think that this is sort of a test thing? I I, I don't know if this is a proper prediction, but if things keep going the way they do, there will probably be these like five-year contracts with an option to renew sooner or later. I mean, you solemnly swear for the next five years, and if that's the case, you can renew. I mean, it's, it's weird where that could go. But it should never be so in the church. Now, I want my kids to say, you know, my parents were very, very different people. But I was absolutely sure they were never going to leave each other. They were just committed. And I want you to recognize, no matter what you do, God's not going to leave you. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, as long as you've accepted his gift. But that is no reason to to sway, to stray and run off. Because then what kind of commitment did you make? In the end of this, these guys think they're going to trap Jesus by saying, which camp are you in? And Jesus looks at him and goes, you're just using people. And you're trying to trap me. You're going to see my commitment. Because quite shortly after this, Jesus is going to die on a cross. And even there he's going to be tempted as people say, well, you know, why don't you just step off that cross? You really are the Son of God. Why don't you just step off that cross? You know, he could have. I mean, you could be thankful I'm not Jesus because I would have stepped off that cross and I would have hit that guy so hard his face would have wound up on like Pluto 
whether it's an, whether it's a planet or not. But it's like, you know, and then I'd have got back up there and said, how'd you like me now? But the moment I would have stepped off, you would have gone to hell and I would have gone to hell too. But he knew that the, even in the midst of all of that, he was dying for the guy that nailed the, nailed his hands to the cross. He was dying for the person who spit in his face and plucked his beard. He was dying for the people that blindfolded him and struck him and said, prophesy who hit you now. And let's face it, Jesus could have said, your name's Brutus and you were bedwetting until age six. I mean, the things Jesus could have said that he didn't. Because just as Isaiah prophesied, that he was silent before his tormentors. And I'm here to say as we go to prayer, where are you at with this, Jesus? You're fighting him? You're trying to make your rules and try to tell God, this is what I feel, that should be enough? I remind you in the beginning, there were two groups of people, those that, by, that wouldn't by faith enter into the promised land as Jesus takes us across. And there were those that got so comfortable on the other side of it that they wouldn't, that they just turned their back on God. Then you have the people who come to Jesus. You have those who really, to be honest, all they want is the temporary fix. And then you have those that had become so fat that they weren't willing to actually yield to God. Same kind of idea. You have the same thing with regards to the camps. You know, when it came to Shemaiah Hillel, there were those that had gotten fat and, you know, liberal, and then there was those that had gotten hardcore, but neither one of them saw the heart of God in what they were doing. And then in the end of all of this, this is where we're at at the end, is where are you with God? Are you at that place today where you're like, you know, I really, I just can't get why God would love me well, why don't you just ask him? God, well, then just, if you, I, I don't have to understand it to accept it. So go ahead and love me. Transform me. Take that guilt that I have and, and, and as you nailed it to the cross, well, then, then please remove it from me. Because I really just want to stand before you innocent. And if you really want to do that, I'd be a fool to say no. So why not? But if you had said yes to Jesus, you said, yes, I do say I do to I do, for the rest of my life? Well, then it's time to walk in that authority and the fruitfulness that comes with choosing to cling. Remember that, being joined? I choose to cling to you for the rest of my life. And watch what he does. Will you pray with me? I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. I want to thank you for the ways that you've opened up uh, your scriptures here and challenged us to, to grab a hold of it. To see when we see something that challenges us to go back to scripture and not just go back to some teacher or some camp or some doctrinal bouviac. But to truly and genuinely recognize that as we see next week, how you, what you really want is our love and what you really want to offer is yours. And I pray, Lord, for those who, in this room today, that when they hear the word Father, they have things they have to overcome. For those who hear words like husband and have, and have to overcome that because they've seen such poor Examples. They've seen all the counterfeits, but they've seen no genuine. And I pray, God, that you would heal our hearts and cleanse us from all of that nonsense that we could recognize you are nothing like that. But you are absolutely committed. You are absolutely sacrificial.
And I pray today that for those who have made claim to you, God, that you would renew and refresh our relationship with you. We don't want to live in your house coincidentally and live our life around you even today. We want to enjoy you. We want you to enjoy us. And I pray that our lives could be one where we could by faith trust your commitment and respond accordingly. Because you came to save. And we need saving. And for those of us who have accepted that gift, we pray we could live a life worthy of the gospel. But here in this room right now, if there be any who have never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure if you've accepted the gift, you can choose today to choose the perfect sacrifice on your behalf. And for that to happen, it says if you're willing to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be rescued, you'll be saved. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now. But you recognize this. Just like a man in pursuit in marriage, somewhere down the line, the knee drops, the ring comes forward and says, will you be mine? And there's a choice to make. And even here, you have a choice to make. Will you accept this gift of Jesus? Here's the prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, in heaven, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm guilty before you in my own things. But you love me anyways is what you tell me here. And you want me anyways. You tell me that too. But you as a righteous judge punish what's wrong. Punish all guilt. But you've said that you've punished all of my guilt on your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. And he died for me. And he rose again so that I could have a new life, no longer standing guilty before you, but washed clean by his sacrifice and living new with him as my Lord. And, and if this is really what you want to do is make me yours and, and make me pure and make me clean, and I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. You want to pay my bill? I say yes. But I declare Jesus is more than just my ransom, but is the architect of my reinvention now too. Make me new. Make me something beautiful. I give you myself and gladly receive your sacrifice for me. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen.